Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. This is our 200th episode, and we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into our show, whether this is your first or 200th time. As always, we feature today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. You can subscribe and catch our next 100 episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director John Lee Hancock's new crime drama, The Highwaymen. The film concentrates on the other side of the Bonnie and Clyde saga, telling the true story of Frank Hamer and Manny Galt, former Texas Rangers who are coaxed out of retirement to end the Barrow Gang's murderous run, when even the full force of the FBI isn't enough to capture the nation's most notorious criminals. In addition to The Highwaymen, Mr. Hancock's credits include the feature films The Founder, Saving Mr. Banks, The Rookie, The Alamo, and The Blind Side, and episodes of the television series L.A. Doctors and Falcone. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Hancock spoke with director Lawrence Kasdan about filming The Highwaymen. During their conversation, Mr. Hancock discusses why it was important to cast the right energy for the two leads. Borrowing from the lore of the Texas Rangers, and the joys and pains of making period films. Thank uh, you guys for coming on yeah. a, a lovely Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Well, I told John when I saw this movie, I, I love this movie, and I, you know, I'm a total sucker for anything Western. And you've made a Western before. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you, would you call this a Western? I, I, I would. I would call it a Western. I mean, because these guys are born kind of, in my mind, 100 years too late. And so there was a little bit of, to me, with these guys, the movie Lonely Are the Brave, kind of that feel with Kirk Douglas and all that brought back into the fray. Yeah. If you haven't seen Lonely Are the Brave, you got to see it. It's spectacularly good. Yeah, one of my favorite movies. Ever. And um, so when you approached it, did you say, I'm making a Western, there happen to be cars in this, or did you take the, how has it changed from what I would do in a Western? I, I, I think that was the, the main part of it was just how you photograph it and, and, and you know, at a 239 and, and trying to take advantage of the landscape. And since it's called The Highwaymen, uh, understanding that, uh, you know, that it's the roads and the big broad spaces and all that. And... The more lonely the journey, I felt the better, which was kind of in keeping with some westerns. I thought, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, now, since I see, I see a expanse of west like that, and I'm immediately won over. Then you put in two of my favorite actors, both of whom are very comfortable, I think, in this milieu, and so it has. There's like an automatic feeling of like. Thank you for doing this, you know. Well, thank you. You you know, you created the career of one of them, Kevin Costner, and work with the other one. So without you I wouldn't be here. And tell us about the history of because this project's been around a long time, right? And you've been with it how long? I've been with it thirteen years. I'm the newcomer. John Fusco, who wrote the script, and Casey Silver have been with it sixteen years. And the first cast was Robert Redford and Paul Newman. That would have been nice. Yes. Um, you know, times are changing so fast. I tell people, you know, if you ask the average young person, who is Paul Newman? 
They're a little vague on that. My uh, my son and daughter, I have uh, twins that are 18 years old and freshmen in college. And when they came to the set, they had no idea who... They knew Woody Harrelson from some movies. They didn't know who Kevin was, but they sure knew Thomas Mann. So they were all... They, Can we get a pick with Thomas Mann? I was like, yeah, yeah. You've worked with John Schwartzman how many times? Uh, this is, I think, our fourth movie. I think the movie's great looking. And did what did you and he discuss before you set out to do this? We, we, we have a really good... I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with not only John, but Michael Kornblith, production designer, and Daniel Orlandi Costumes on four or five movies. And so our conversations start really early because I think they all kind of intertwine. And that's why I love prep is because, you know, if Michael's talking about building a set, then the color of the walls translates over into Daniel's, you know, uh, you know, costumes and the way we're going to shoot it and and all those decisions. So the more we can just kind of, you know, roundtable it and keep talking, the better. But John and I talked about I would say the most important thing was one, we wanted it, you know, widescreen, but two kind of the philosophy behind uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Because in the script, Fusco had said, you never quite get a good look at them. And, and I thought, well, let's put that idea on steroids and make every time we see Bonnie and Clyde more like a graphic novel. Let's make the, the colors really punchy and bright. Let's make the cars far too shiny to be realistic. Let's build to what not only the public in 1934 was thinking, but perhaps viewers this year would be thinking, which is let's build them up so that when we see them and they enter the naturalistic kind of photographic stage of the movie where they intrude, if you will, on the ambush, we see them for what they are, which is they're, it's kind of sad. They're scrawny kids. Yeah, I thought that part was enormously effective. And prior to that, as you're withholding what they look like, it has a real comic book look in terms of blacking out the getting their silhouette and it's a wonderful feeling and i think that's what i'm particularly drawn to about this kind of story you know it, it there's something so essential to america about this kind of story and these kind of characters um what is it what do you find to be the appeal of westerns is it just you like the form or do you think it tells us something about what's going on now I, th I uh, both. I mean, one, I'm a big fan of westerns too. Probably the the Searchers is one of my favorite movies. Um, so I I love that idea of the expanse, but I also think that um, we have a real. I mean, I think as as Americans, probably we we have a real attraction to somebody who's who is saying, "I'm going to do the job, and I'm not going to talk about it, and I'll do it well." That said, I mean, these are very flawed men, and nobody comes into this with clean hands. And being a, a, a son of Texas, Texas is a blood-in, blood-out proposition always, and it still is. And so and it's an enigma. So I'm, I'm drawn to that. I'm really drawn to it. This was never meant to be an antidote to Bonnie and Clyde, which is a movie I really like and opened the door, I think, to many of my favorite movies in the 70s. But just taking it from the perspective of the lawmen has been really interesting in terms of what people bring to their viewing. And, you know, but when you think about it, people have asked me, they go, so is this a Trump movie? And I go, I 
it could have been a Bush movie or an Obama movie. I mean, it almost got made all these times, so I don't know. But we all, and I'm respective of the fact that we all bring our own lens, you know, and politics and everything else to the movie. It's the same movie I would have made 13 years ago. That brings me to this, um, you know, I revere these two actors. I think they're great guys and great fun. Um, there are always challenges over the course of a movie. But the, the fact, the way that Kevin has inhabited his body and given all the way to his gut and to the way he walks and um, it's kind of lovely and he can spring into action but it looks like an old man springing into action which is what you want and I think that's a really wonderful running feeling in the movie and um, you know these young the target is this young ephemeral couple and their buddies, who you can actually squeeze out between their fingers, you know, and get away. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I love that thing. Tell me how, and Woody, who is not quite as old as Kevin, but he takes it beautifully. Your introduction to him is terrific, where it's, you feel the weight of him getting out to the road, you know? Tell me about that. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for two actors that were willing to play being down the road a bit. I mean, Kevin, when we had the scene where he has to try to run after the kid, he goes, I'm guessing this is the first time that Frank Hamer has broken into a run in 20 years. And, and they were never shy about it. I mean, Kevin put on like 25 pounds for the role because he had seen pictures of Frank Hamer and he goes, this is kind of what it should be. And now he's, you know, he's lean again. He's lost all that weight. But um, yeah, the fact that they were willing to embrace that and not try to go, but I'm not looking cool here was a real advantage they bought in from the start. And how do you communicate with them about the rhythm of the piece, since Frank is this kind of straight man, completely taciturn, and Woody, as soon as he comes into the movie, you know Woody's going to bring some fun. Yeah, no, I, I just felt like, you know how it is when you cast, you cast to the energy, and I felt like that they were two sides of the same coin, and that, that Woody was kind of the conscience of them and that's probably why Frank wanted him along there was also a little bit of probably almost like soldiers and PTSD and all that who can they talk to about it about their wounds and their memories and their nightmares and hallucinations and it's someone else who's been through it so I think that Frank wanted him to come along for that reason now he didn't think he was probably going to get the earful he did but he needed him there what would tell us in your what did you say to Kevin about what is the history of this man who's done so much and, and you grew up in Texas and the Texas Rangers are there it's like they're the Avengers or something they're absolutely mythical and the stories have been blown up and exaggerated but doesn't matter anymore as you say in the movie and uh, you know we all are sort of stuck on that thing which is uh, when the legend becomes fact and the legend yeah so Tell me how you spoke to both of them about their real people and how you wanted to show those people. Well, I think, I think you, you know Kevin as well as I do. Kevin was in my very first movie that I wrote, A Perfect World. So he was very good to me. He treated me like a little brother in all the good ways and bad ways um, on that movie in like 1992. Um, but so I've known him a long time. Um, he's very much kind of that guy. And, and, you know, he's he's a kid from Riverside and he's 
you know, he's the guy down the block who happens to be handsome, but is all American and, you know, and, and thinks of himself. It's like, no, there's right and wrong. And I think he glommed onto the character. He turned the script down 10 years ago because he said, I love the script. I'm not old enough yet. And he was right. Absolutely. He was right. And he said, I need to age into this one a little bit. But I think when he got on board, he started reading everything about Frank Hamer. And I knew about Frank Hamer because in Texas, he's the most famous Texas Ranger. And their lore is both, they cast a big shadow, but it's also, you know, a little scary. They were the guys who got the job done. You might not like how they got it done. Um, and so talking about that with him was, it's a real shorthand because in, didn't take long for him to read everything about Frank Hamer and then come in with like a million different stories about we should add this, we should add this. And you could do 10 movies about Frank Hamer. Woody just from the start read the script and said, I want to do this. I love it. So tell me when, you know, and then six years later we did it. And I called him and he said, oh, you didn't forget me. And I said, nope, I'm glad. Yeah, he's a, he's a pleasure in every way. And you're going to have lovely, delightful times hanging out with him. And then he's an amazing pro and adjustable and very relaxed about making a change. He, he is. I mean, they're both great. They, I mean, like every time, I mean, you've done this more than I have, but you know that when you get different energies on a set, you've cast them because they have different energies. You're making a beef stew. And so some are potatoes, some are meat, some are celery, carrots, whatever. And you're trying to make sure it all meshes in a good way, but they all have different working styles and energies. And so it's your job as a director to give them an opportunity to do their best work. And, and, and these guys had, they loved each other and they worked well together, but they had different energy. So it's about trying to, you know, present an atmosphere for them to work well together. And they did. I've done a good many ensemble movies. And, but even if you have just two leads, a two hander, really, <clears throat> you're faced with one problem. There are directors in the audience, which is that what you want to say to one of them, you don't want to say to the other. <laughs> But there's often not much intimacy or privacy in which to do that. How do you approach that problem? That's a, man, that's a good question. Because you have to figure out, it's, it's almost like you're a coach of a team and you have to figure out how to, you know, deal with each player. And sometimes someone wants a hug and sometimes, you know, you want to come and say, come on and be a little more stern. You have to be able to do that and play, play it around. Um, the relationship I had with those guys was Kevin was very precise and he really, I mean, this guy was thinking about this, this role when we were shooting it 15 hours a day, he would come in with new ideas and he would wear you out in all the best ways because the last thing he was an actor to come in and go, yeah, what are we doing today? No, he was on it, on it, on it. So he was looking for precision. Whereas Woody was kind of a little more thematic in a weird way here's what we're kind of going for here. Yes. And he goes, oh, you want me to do less? And I go, yeah, a little bit less. Yes. Okay, good. And so many of them, the great ones are like that, where it's like driving a really wonderful car, and it's just a tiny little turn on the wheel, and they're, they're there. Yeah. Don't you find that, though? That's like the, the most fun, because I, a million years ago, I used to be a theater director, and you had the luxury of time, which is like, oh, let's go and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about this for 20 minutes and we'll come back and we'll rehearse for four more hours and all this. And in film, you find out very quickly that it's almost like 
the old TV show named that tune. It's like, how many notes, what are the fewest number of notes you can tell and pass along that someone's brain is going to explode in a good way? So that became kind of the, the fun and pleasure of directing as opposed to going, let me tell you what I'm thinking. It's like, if you can whisper those perfect one, two, three words in an actor's ear, they do something that I can't do and make their brain kind of go, I, I got it, turn it on, turn it on right now. We have a mutual friend in Scott Frank, and when Scott went off to make Godless, and he asked me, he talked to me about Westerns, and the um, main thing I said to him, I think, was everything takes so much longer than you think it's going to take. Now, you had cars instead of horses most of the time, but um, do you not find that the resets are killing and the... It's it's all it, it, it's 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 really fun when you show up like the the scene in Coffeeville, Kansas, and you've got the downtown that all looks like 1934, and you've got the beautiful old cars, and this is the shot, and you go, this is I've been transported, this is wonderful, what a great job I have, and then there's take two, and you go, it's going to be 15 minutes because three cars broke down, you know, and then you become you're constantly looking at, oh my God, I'm seeing a transformer. Okay, we're going to have to erase that later. So period pieces are joy because you're transported, but they're also kind of a pain uh, in post because of all the work you have to do erasing. Yes, you do. In the old days, you didn't even have that option. So when I was making Silverado, we would wait for the contrails of jet planes to go away. We Ke had to, Kevin told me that. Yeah, he talked about no, that. And that's now you'd be going crazy if you had to do it. So there's a big advantage in that you can take out whatever you want when well, you want. And you know what's weird is like people say, well, you know, I go, this is kind of a CG movie. Yeah. I go, what do you mean? I go, there are 670 CG shots in this movie. Now, almost every one of them is erasing a transformer or a modern wire or a cell tree. Or then when you have it, I'm not sure it's a great thing, but you're watching and you go, what's that white thing in the deep background back there blowing and they go it's a plastic grocery bag and you go ah, we should take it out it's nice to do that um tell me how it wound up at netflix and how did you find you've made many studio movies tell me how you found the experience to be different if at all and what would you tell someone who's you know desperately wants to make their movie and is looking for anyone who really wants to make their movie I would say that um, yeah, this movie is originally Universal, and this was a script that everyone always loved and wanted to make, and it was just either we couldn't get the price point right to make it successfully, where you go, I'll, I don't have to get paid a lot of money, but I want to put enough money into it to make it good, or we didn't have the right cast or whatever. And so, and then I went off and did three or four other movies in the interim, so I'm just, you know partly to blame. But so there was that going on. Everybody always liked the script and wanted to make the movie. Just we couldn't quite get it made. And um, then Scott Stuber, who had been at Universal, was at Netflix. And I think before he had an office, he, uh, you know, Scott Greenberg, my agent, had been, it was friends with Stuber, had been, you know, saying, what about the highwaymen? And he reread it and said, oh, I always loved this script. And so we had a meeting at a hotel before he had an office saying, I want to do this movie. And when you've waited around 13 years, the answer is yes. Um, and so the experience of working with Netflix was exactly the same to a point. It was exactly the same as a great studio experience where they go, we're making the movie, here's the budget, you agree on a budget, you go into prep, you shoot the movie, you have post, 
you do a preview, all that. The difference is obviously distribution. And, you know, we, we followed uh, on the heels of Roma and other movies. So we had a theatrical release, which is great. Because a lot of people have contacted me and said that they got to see the movie in the theater, which is fantastic. Like you guys, thanks for coming. Um, but uh, but then you know, last weekend it was dropped around the world, and it's kind of unbelievable for a movie that I didn't think was ever going to get done to then be, you know, like number one in 170 countries over a weekend, and it's amazing. And so, at some point, you. The older you get, it's like, what do you want? One, you want to you want to be happy with a movie. You want to be proud of a movie first and foremost. Second, you want people to see it. I mean, when I did the founder, it was the distribution was completely uh, the, <laughs> the distribution was completely botched by the Weinstein company because you know I didn't know what was going on, but they kept moving the day. Now, come to find out, he was broke because he was paying off a whole lot of people for reasons we're all aware of now. Um, but I haven't heard anything about it. Nothing. <laughs> but, I mean, that's a movie that would, as much as I, I mean, I loved Film Nation and doing the movie for them. They were a, a great production company. It was just, and I'm complicit in this. I said yes to Harvey, too. So, you know, it's what it is. But that's a movie that would have been well served on Netflix because more people would have seen it. It's kind of sad that I hear so many people saying, you know what, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I saw, I really love The Founder. I saw it on a plane. Oh, we've all had that experience. And or how about the one where they say, I really liked it. Like a big surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could do, what well, would you do another Western? Do you think it's important that you move away from that? Did you have enough pleasure from it? You had done a big Western early in your career. Tell me what the experience between the Alamo and, and this. The Alamo was both the best and worst experience I've ever had. It was the best because being a kid from Texas, you're so into that world. And, and I was really interested in telling the historically true story of it. It's a, it's a story not of Texas or the United States. It's a, it's a Mexican Civil War. And so I had 15 historians. And, you know, there was one day we fed 10,000 people. And there was before CG was really, you could really use it. So we were putting it all in camera. And it was pretty fantastic. I mean, every day just... Look at all the trucks and the troops, and I, I loved it. You know, the post was was very difficult in trying. I, I mean, I would do it again, but I've, I know a lot more now at the start. Um, I also kind of do like doing a movie in a certain kind of budget range because you're left more alone, and I think you can make things a little more gray than if you're doing a really expensive movie. Um, would I do another Western? Absolutely. I wonder about any serious movie now that is definitely mainly going to be seen on a streaming service no matter what, even if it gets a theatrical run. But it seems like the um, audience for a theatrical run is infinitesimal now, and the theaters have been taken over by big movies that we're all aware of. Yeah. Um, so would it be your strong preference to go Netflix or something? I would say, because as you might imagine, since this movie re was released in theaters, I've been asked a lot of questions about Netflix and Spielberg and streaming and the Academy and all that. And I would just say that, one, for me, as I said before, this was the best possible scenario to be with Netflix. 
that said, I love the theatrical experience, would not want that to go to what go away. I think there are people that are far smarter than I who can figure all this out, but it comes down to what is the window? And and I think that studios have both been smart because they're they have quarterly reports and shareholders. And, you know, I, I don't blame them for making 37 Avengers movies every year because that's who's going to the theaters now. And I also know that, you know, a movie like Roma probably did more money in the theaters than a lot of other really great movies last year that were in the theaters. That a lot of movies that I love can't stand a 90-day theatrical window. I mean, Florida Project. I mean, after two weeks, you know, it's, I love that movie. But after two weeks... You know, it's diminished and then they've got to wait forever for it to be released where people can see it on DVD or whatever. And I think there's a best of both worlds. I think, you know, why can't we all just get along thing happening? I couldn't agree more. Do you find that the word that comes back to you is different because they've seen it on Netflix or they've seen it in the theater? And obviously that's that's the challenge to get anyone into a theater. But yeah, well, how, how, I've never experienced what you're experiencing right now which is it's a very much different experience. It, it, it is. I would say, and this is totally anecdotal, but I would say I've never received more calls and texts from people that I haven't talked to in 10 years after an opening weekend of a movie who've seen it on Netflix. So that's great. You want your movie seen. I didn't think it was going to get made. I was always hopeful, but it got made, and the you know, response has been great. So I'm very... Very pleased to have done with this with Netflix, and every promise they made, they kept times 10. I've heard that a lot, so it's a real ringing endorsement of Netflix. Let's talk a little bit about having a career as a director. <laughs> the, uh, what you were describing about Alamo, I've been in that situation. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. The, what has, doesn't change between the two is they all take the same amount of blood to get there. And so you can have something that unexpectedly has a long life in the theater and everybody's happy with you. Yeah. Or you can have a thing, as we talked about which is, um, before, which is you work for two years on something and the studio calls you at 4 o'clock and they say, we just got the New York matinees and it's really over. Yeah. So now you've just spent two years writing, directing, and they're saying, we're giving up right now so you know we really admire you and we love the picture you made that's so crushing yeah it is how do you get up from that that you know what i don't think i've ever been able to get up from that to be honest i think it you, you i carry that with me for a while i mean you try to put your best foot forward and and all that but you have family and all those people because it affects if it were just me being affected that'd be fine because I already think I'm a loser. So, you know, if, but when you have to share it with your kids and your wife and your relatives and it's all that, it's, it's like taking a two-year really exhaustive course where, you know, you're up early uh, for class and they're late and studying hard and then you have a very short exam and it's, you know, up or down. And they have to twist themselves into all kinds of shapes to make you feel ba better and to let you know this is not the end of your life, and they love you anyway, but you feel the struggle. Oh, it's, I think that's the worst part, but it's also a little like, 
you know, when you're, uh, when your, your kids are playing sports or in a play or whatever, and you're watching, you're like hanging on everything. And you know, you know, your kid plays in baseball in little league and they strike out three times and they're like down for about five minutes and you're like trying to pick them up and bend over backwards. I remember my son when the Alamo was a huge failure at the box office, when he, he read something and he was young. He's only 18 now, so it's been a while, but he, uh, he was young and he goes, but I really like Daddy's movie. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I've been there. So you've been around quite a while now. You look like a young man. You maybe don't feel quite as young. Yeah. But um, what was your long-term view of how this is going to work out? If somebody had told me uh, before Perfect World came out, they go, okay, here's the deal. Because I was a lawyer in Houston who chucked it all and moved to Los Angeles, didn't know anybody, anybody, and worked PA work, had a theater company. If somebody said, if the devil had pulled me aside and said, okay, here's the deal. You're going to write a script that's your script, and it's going to get made with the biggest movie star in the world and Clint Eastwood directing, and you never get anything else. Would you say yes? I would have gone twice on Sunday. So I'm a lucky, lucky, fortunate, blessed guy. I think that's true. A lot of a lot of people feel that way because it is, it's a um, unique experience. It's every bit as good as people think it is, and all the people trying to be that person, they're they're chasing the right. Yeah. You know. There's a lot of love invested in the movie, and it's a love for genre and for America and for what movies can be. I, I felt it too very strongly. Congratulations, John. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.